The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Jesus prayed for his disciples, and then he said, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Christ yesterday and today, the beginning and the end, Alpha and Omega. All times belong to Him and all the ages. To Him be glory and power through every age forever. Amen. This prayer is familiar to many who attended the Easter Vigil. It is the prayer commonly used while the priest blesses the Paschal candle at the very start of the service, and taking its light from the new fire heralds our Lord's resurrection. Here at Holy Cross Monastery this year, it was particularly striking. Due to the liturgical equivalent of a wardrobe malfunction, the fire never caught on. But our nimble altar party managed to get the candle blessed and lighted, and we were off once again with our Easter observance. Of course, Christ's resurrection did not and does not depend on our ritual actions. And as Rowan Williams once said, no matter how early you get to the tomb, God has already been there first. I find myself regularly praying this formula of blessing from the Easter Vigil Liturgy. It is a bracing reminder that the course of this world and of our life together in it is ultimately in the hands of someone greater and more enduring than we are. The whole cosmic story stretches from before the primordial beginning to the very end of time. And at the beginning of it, and at the end of it, and at all the times and seasons between, there is Christ, the eternal word, creating, reconciling, healing, redeeming, 
transforming. It is a prayer of a big faith, fitting our small stories into a cosmic setting and helping us make sense of our life and times. It is also a prayer which captures the message of the book of Revelation, that mysterious final book of the New Testament, also known as the Apocalypse of John, that is, the Great Unveiling. We have, in fact, been hearing every Sunday since Easter portions of this book. Admittedly, they are the passages focused on the promise of life and light and the new heaven and the new earth and of the universal invitation to all who are thirsty to come and drink. The sections having to do with the seven plagues and the moon turning to blood and the four horsemen riding over the earth and the bottomless pit and the bowls of the wrath of God, all the really dramatic parts, are left for another time, usually for the office of matins at seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but whatever else it may be, the book of Revelation assures us that God is in charge and that we can hope for a new age and a new order of justice and peace. It is a hope that gives us the courage to work for just such an age and such an order. We find ourselves today in a strange period in the church year. On Thursday, we celebrated the Feast of the Ascension of our Lord. Christ has returned to his Father's side. His disciples have witnessed his departure. They return to Jerusalem, and they worship, and they wait. What next? What happens now? What do we dare hope for or fear? Where shall we go? What shall we do? Who are we? We are all familiar with these questions. They are the constants in our human condition when we feel in between or fall between the cracks of life. It's a situation that recurs regularly. I want to share with you two vignettes about this experience the experience of those first disciples in the days after the ascension and in our own day. The first has to do with a story that I've related many times. It's actually not my story, but comes from our late brother Andrew Cohoon, that beloved curmudgeonly Scotsman. He told of one of his aunts who had a tendency toward malapropisms, getting words ever so slightly wrong with rather humorous results. In one instance, in an effort to console someone who had suffered a difficult setback in her life, <clears throat> Andrew's aunt tenderly said, God doesn't shut one door, but he closes another. <laughs> we can laugh at this, of course, but you know, this sounds pretty accurate in many cases. How many of us know people or have ourselves been in situations where not just one, but several doors closed almost simultaneously? Whether they be doors of financial or educational or romantic opportunity or of physical or emotional health, 
or of spiritual aliveness. But it is also a truth that folks who experience this closing of the doors learn if they are resilient and the circumstances of life do not overwhelm them. They learn that when the doors close and we are exiled to the hallways, we discover that life goes on even there. It may take time for our inner eyes to adjust to this new and unfamiliar environment, but we find that we are not alone there and that the conditions, while far from our dreams and desires, are bearable and sometimes even interesting in new and unexpected ways. I wonder if this was the experience of that apostolic band of men and women who were disoriented and perhaps left bereft and grieving by the exquisite absence of Jesus from their lives, and who yet, as St. Luke says, were continually in the temple blessing God. The doors, it seems, were closed, all the doors. God had tantalized them and captured their hearts and minds and fired their spirits in and through Jesus. And now they were left in the lurch, waiting. Yet even in their waiting, in their waiting together, they found the way to form a community and to worship God and to nurture hope in each other. It was a hope that was richly rewarded. Yes, sometimes God doesn't shut one door, but he closes another. But that's never the end of the story, not for those early followers of Jesus and not for us. The second vignette is a bit more personal. As I reflected on the ascension this week and looked at various icons and images of the passing of Jesus into the heavens, I was struck by how the men and women stand there gazing up, just as we hear described in the Acts of the Apostles. What were they experiencing, feeling, perceiving at that moment? As I was reflecting, I was taken back to 1968, when I was 19 years old and went away to Europe for a junior year abroad. I had lived at home for my first two years of college, and hearing the adventures of my high school friends now away at college or university, I was envious and longed to escape and share in similar adventures. So I saved up my money from part-time jobs and summer labors and scraped together enough to live on the cheap in Belgium while studying at a venerable university. I booked passage on a small student ocean liner, and my parents went with me to New York City to see me off. I was standing on the ship's deck waving to them, and they were on the dock waving to me. It was just like in the movies. <laughs> and then the horns blew, and suddenly I noticed that they were getting smaller and smaller. Seriously, I don't know what I expected, but to use the language in St. Luke's account of the Ascension, they withdrew from my sight. It was so disorienting, 
At once I felt a great fear and also a great freedom. I was on my own at last, and it felt, well, it felt scary and full of possibilities I couldn't even imagine. I wonder now if the experience of those early disciples wasn't something like my experience on a small ship slowly moving away from New York. It was I that was moving, not my parents, who were still there on the dock, waving until I couldn't see them any longer. And I wonder, maybe it wasn't Jesus who moved at all or ascended. Maybe it was the disciples who moved, moved away from their risen Lord so that they could experience both the challenge and the freedom and the joyous possibility of becoming the newborn people of God. What if Jesus, in some real sense, is still there on the Mount of the Ascension, waving to us and saying to our hearts, don't be afraid, I'm still with you, I'm always with you. Now go out, go out into the world, go on, it's okay. Be my church, be my body in the world, be alive, be the good news that you proclaim. Well, this is a bit of a stretch, perhaps. But it seems to me that God is always stretching us to take our place in the cosmic story and to make our mark, however large or small, in the world. And in this liminal period between the Feast of the Ascension and the celebration next Sunday of Holy Pentecost, just as in all the in-between or liminal spaces of our little lives and our corporate history as a people and a species, we are reminded the story is larger than us and wider than us and far more vast than we can imagine. And at its beginning and at its end, at, at every moment and at every place in between, there is Christ, our courteous Lord, dwelling in the hallways with those for whom so many doors have been closed and waving at us from the dock and speaking softly to our hearts, saying, it's okay, I am with you to the end of the ages. Now go, live. And so we pray, Christ yesterday and today, the beginning and the end, Alpha and Omega, all times belong to him and all the ages. To him be glory and power, for every age, forever. Amen.